Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning, Crosswinds. Great to see you. If you're uh, visiting, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds Church. Last week, we just finished an exciting series called, What Does the Bible Say About Sexuality? And I had a a number of you say that they appreciated some of the information we were able to share with that. And some people said, you know, maybe we could put this in some kind of a booklet form to help other people access it. And so we did. Actually, uh, we put it into a book format. It's been submitted to Amazon for the Kindle and to the iBook store. We've also put it on Nook. Uh, Kindle has already approved it as of last night. It'll probably be approved on the iBook store within 48 hours and as well as Nook. So if you want to download that, just look for what does the Bible say about sexuality in your iBook store, and you should be able to have the proofed manuscripts all put together in a book format for you to help you in your conversation with friends. Well, it's fall. We've made the official transition. Summer is over, and now we're into this you know, nice fall season and harvest and, and football. I mean, we've already had the Iowa-Iowa State game. I mean, it's early in the season for that. Now, unfortunately, I was rooting for Iowa State because I like to root for the underdog. <laughs> you know, I was hoping that they would eventually win, but it didn't work out that way. At least there's still high school football. So look forward to a good long season for that. But with uh, the fall and everything sort of changing, it seemed like an appropriate time for us to start a new series here at Crosswinds. And that's what we're doing today. We're starting a new series on the book of Genesis. Now, you know Genesis is a big whopping book. It is 50 chapters long. And Pastor Jordan and I talked about and how we're going to divide this book up and figure out how to preach this thing in any kind of reasonable amount of time. Well, when we divided it up, uh, we figured we'd do it in 47 weeks. But things did not go well this week of pre- preparation because we were planning on covering the entire first chapter today. And in both of our preparations, we already cut it in half. So we're up to 48 weeks. So you may want to start taking bets on how long this book is going to go, but we will eventually finish it. Now, Genesis is a long book, but it is a really good book. It's a foundational book to all kinds of parts of our faith. Genesis, it simply means beginnings or origins. And if you think about it, the book of Genesis has the beginnings. It has the origins of almost everything. And it's very important because until you understand where you came from, you have no idea how to understand where you're going. Because where you came from determines how you live each and every day. And what you believe about where you came from determines how you live each and every day. Now, let me show you some of the things that Genesis covers in the way of origins. For instance, Genesis covers the origins of the universe. If you look at other world religions and and different religions out there, even scientific theories today, they'll say there is pre-existent matter or pre-existent energy or pre-existent stuff that's always been there eternal. And Genesis tells us the true origins of the universe. It says stuff is not eternal. Only God is eternal. And God created space. He created matter. He created time. 
Genesis also tells us where um, order and beauty came from. Because if you know, that, look at your bedroom. Does it go into a position of order and beauty or disorder and chaos? No. What? Disorder and chaos. It takes like less than a week and your bedroom is a mess, right? So where did order in this universe come from? And where did beauty come from? There's all different kinds of explanations, but the Bible in Genesis tells us that order and beauty is part of creation, and it's inherent to us because of God. God likes order. God likes beauty. We find about this all in the book of Genesis. Where did life come from? Scientists are still wrestling with how do you get dead materials and amino acids and, and just proteins, dirt, and then all of a sudden have it spring into life. And not just simple life, but complex life like animals. Animals with beauty and creation about it. And not just the animal itself, but the animal has the ability to reproduce itself in identical like kind. Where did this come from? How do you get that from dirt? And scientists are still baffled by that, but Genesis tells us where it all came from, doesn't it? Genesis tells us that life is the special creation of God. Now, where did man come from? Because that's us. We're not just another animal, and we all know that. Animals may have beauty, they may have intricacy, incredible amounts of complexity like the human eye. Animals may have the ability to reproduce, but humans have a different level. We have the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. We have the ability for love. We have the ability to worship. Where does that come from? Genesis explains the origins. It says, man was created in the image of God. Part of being created in the image of God is love, right and wrong, worship. Where did marriage come from? Society says it's just a social creation that just happens to work. Man, one man, one woman. Genesis says, no, God created the institution of marriage. One man, one woman with God Himself officiating the very first wedding. Genesis also tells us what went wrong with this world and where evil came from. And where evil, death, suffering, it all came from the fall, and Genesis describes it. But not only that, but Genesis also gives us God's plan to save us from this work, this mess through Jesus Christ. It all comes from Genesis. Genesis gives us the origin of almost everything. It explains it. Well, not only is Genesis giving us the origin of everything, but Genesis is very interconnected with everything. So how important is Genesis to the rest of the Bible? Most of us do not realize that the rest of the Bible constantly refers back to the book of Genesis as the touchstone for reality and how things run. For instance, Abraham. Abraham comes up in Genesis, and we read his story, but there are 15 other Old Testament books that talk about Abraham and reference back to Genesis, and 11 of the New Testament books reference back and talk about Abraham. Genesis is interconnected with everything. How about Jacob? 
20 of the other Old Testament books refer back to Jacob in Genesis. 17 New Testament books refer back to Jacob and Genesis. 37 other books of the Bible are directly connected back to Jacob and what happened in Genesis. You see how foundational Genesis is to everything in Scripture? And if you look in the New Testament, you know that sometimes the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and quote passages of Scripture. Do you know how many times the New Testament quotes from the book of Genesis? 165 times. That's how foundational Genesis is. And if you add allusions, which are not direct quotations, but inadvertent references back to Genesis, so you have quotations and allusions, you have 200 times the New Testament refers back to something that happened in Genesis. So as you can see, the book of Genesis is foundational for everything, not just for life, but for our Christian faith. So it's a very important book for us to study. Now here is what's very interesting. All of the biblical references to Genesis that take place in Scripture, all of them consider the book factual. Sometimes when we get to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which talks about creation in six days, Noah, the Tower of Babel, we often go, well, that's probably not literally what happened. It's probably just a myth. It's probably just a story. But in every single New Testament quotation in Genesis, an illusion, all 200, every time Genesis is considered pure fact, not fiction. That's the way Jesus considers it. That's the way the Old Testament prophets considered it. That's the way the New Testament apostles consider it. So when you start to say that Genesis, especially those first chapters, is just mythology or just a, some kind of poetic representation, you are on very thin ice. You're disagreeing with the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles. And that's not a place you want to go. Not only uh, do you get on thin ice if you start to discount the first few chapters of Genesis, because what you believe about your beginnings has a reflection on what you believe about this earth's ending. Because the very beginning of, Jesus, or of Genesis and the very ending of Revelation are tightly connected together. So if you think that the special creation and the fall and the tree of life and all that stuff was mythology in Genesis, you don't just lose history, but you lose the future and eternity. Let me show you something. I found this in my studies, and I know it's uh, bad form to go through long quotations as, you're, as a public speaker, but I'm going to do it anyway. I want to show you how the first few chapters of Genesis connect so tightly with the last few chapters of Revelation. Because the first few chapters of Genesis talk about this creation. The last few chapters of Revelation talk about the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. Genesis 1-4 says, God separated light from darkness. But when you get to Revelation 21-25, it's specifically described as, there is no more night and no more darkness. Genesis 1.10, 
God separated the land from the sea. But Revelation 21.1, talking about the new creation, you know it's different because there is no more sea. Genesis 1.16, God made the sun and the moon to rule the day and the night. When you get to Revelation 21.3, there is no more need of sun or moon because Jesus now is the light. Genesis 2, 8 through 9, man is placed in a garden. Revelation 21, 2, man is now placed in a prepared city. And like, we have a lot more people now. <laughs> Both specially prepared places by God. Genesis 1, 10, there is a river flowing out of Eden, we find. I think Revelation 21, 1, there is a river in the new creation, but this time it's flowing from God's throne. Genesis 2.9, the tree of life was in the center of the original Garden of Eden. But you come to Revelation 22.2, the tree of life now is in the new creation, but it's in the center of the city. Genesis 3.8, God says, walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Revelation 21.3 says, now God lives with His people in the city. You see how these two are like connected together? And if you say the first chapters of mythology of, of Genesis, then you lose Revelation and the new heavens and the new earth. Not only that, but when you look at what happened in the fall, look what happened in the fall with Genesis and how that changed when you get to the new creation. Genesis 3.17 says, the ground was cursed. But when you get to the new creation, in Revelation 22.3, it describes life in the new Jerusalem as being life without a curse. See how it's reversed? Genesis 3.17 says, life will be daily sorrow. But in the new creation, it specifically says in Revelation 21.4, there is no more sorrow, crying, or pain. Genesis 3.19 in the old creation says that we will experience death and return to trust because of sin. But in the new creation, in Revelation 21.4, it says there is no more death. In the old creation, in Genesis 3.24, it says we will be barred from the tree of life. But when you get to the new creation, in Revelation 21.14, we have full access to the tree of life. They're connected together. Apparently, the first few chapters of Genesis aren't myth. They're not guesses. They're fact because they connect with Revelation. Peter comes along, and he makes a very interesting argument. Peter says, you know, one day there is going, the earth is going to be destroyed with fire, and God will create a new heavens and a new earth, a special creative act of God. We believe that? right? But he bases his line of reasoning on the fact is, guess what? In the past, wasn't there a time where God destroyed the earth? But it wasn't by fire. It was by water with Noah. Noah is not a myth. Peter considers him a fact. And just like there was a special, there'll be a special new creation, which is a creative act of God, there is a special old creation that we're living on now, which was specifically a creative act of God. Folks, listen to me. The new heavens and the new earth will not take billions of years to evolve into existence, right? Our current heavens and earth did not take billions of years to evolve into existence. They were a special creative act 
of God. That's Peter's logic. Look what it says. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 1. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Noah is a factual thing that happened. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire to be kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Then he goes on. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, which God will create as a special creative act by his word. Just like our current planet in heaven was a special creative act that took place by his word. Now let's push pause on on that line of reasoning for a moment. Let's take another question. Who wrote Genesis? If you've been around the church for any length of time, I think you probably know the answer. Moses, right? Moses wrote Genesis, and that has been what was considered for almost all of church history the standard historical fact. But in some recent years, people began questioning it. They said, well, Moses couldn't have written Genesis because we don't believe that people had the ability to, to do writing in those days. Moses couldn't have written Genesis, and you have these guys that come along that are too smart for their own britches, and they come up with something called the JEDP hypothesis, that there were four different editors, and they compiled it much later in time, and they put it together, and they did it as if Moses was writing it. What do you say to these modern critics? Well, here's some things you need to know. Number one, it's been proven without a shadow of a doubt that writing did take place in the time of Moses and even before the time of Moses. So Moses would have no problem writing it, especially since he happened to be educated in Pharaoh's palace. Like, you had the best education available anywhere. I don't think writing was a problem. Secondly, the JEDP hypothesis, it's been proven factually untrue. I had an associate that worked for me for a while, and he he was a really, really smart guy. He actually wrote at his work some papers defeating the JEDP hypothesis. After he left working for me, he became a professor at Moody Bible College. So he's a really smart dude. And a number of people have proven that's just not true. It's not accepted as historical fact. But even more interestingly, if you don't think Moses wrote this book, you have to realize who you're disagreeing with. You're disagreeing with Jesus. Now, if you can trust Jesus to save your soul for all of eternity, you can trust what he said about who wrote the book of Genesis, right? Look what Jesus says here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When he says beginning with Moses, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they simply, he simply calls it, it's Moses' books. Because Moses wrote them. Now, incidentally, uh, did Moses write every last word in it? Uh, I would think so, but I don't know exactly how the very last chapter of Deuteronomy got in there because it recounts Moses' death. So it's hard to write about your death like after you die. Uh, But other than that, 
it's generally accepted that Moses is the one who, who wrote the book. And I'm going to go with Jesus because uh, if I, you know, I just trust him. Now, here's a question. How did Moses write Genesis? That may not sound like an important question, except for the fact Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I could see Moses writing those because he wrote those things that are relatively contemporaneous with his own life, right? So you can write about those things. But Moses, like, where did you get your information on the flood? Only Noah lived and his sons and family lived through it. Where did you get your information on the Tower of Babel? Moses, where did you get the whole creation story? I mean, you weren't there. Now, could God have just given all that information in the first 11 chapters uh, to Moses by special revelation, like ah, downloaded it? Yeah, he could have. He's God. He can do it. Now, I'm going to guess the way I think it took place. I'm not 100% sure that's the way it took place, but I'll just tell you what I think, and I'm still developing in my thoughts on this. When you look at the book of Genesis, you find 10 times an interesting phrase. It says, and these are the generations of. It's almost like um, markers put throughout the book of Genesis. For all of a sudden, when you get to the... uh, end of Genesis 2.24, it says, and these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Like, this is the uh, how the heavens and the earth were created story. End. You get to Genesis 5.1, it says, and these are the generations of Adam. Like, you get to the end of the Adam story, and he puts a marker there. You get to Genesis 6.9, and these are the generations of Noah story. Puts a marker there. Why does he keep using that phrase? Well, here's what I think happened. I think Genesis is a book that Moses compiled from other books. What I think happened is that um, these ancient patriarchs, what they did is they wrote down the history of what God had done in their lifetime, because writing was available, and then what they did is they passed it from fathers to son. It's like the family history album. It goes all the way back to God giving Adam the story of creation and Adam passing it all the way down. These guys live ultra-long periods of time, and this eventually gets into the point where Moses can compile this book, and he puts these markers in it as to where they, where they end and where they move on. Now, I'm not 100% sure this is exactly what happened, but I'm just as a guess Now, is God obviously superintending the whole process, so God is the one ultimately behind the authorship of Moses? Of course. But this is where I think Moses got his material from. And it's interesting, because Genesis, when we read it, it doesn't look that organized. But when you study it, it is highly organized. Written by a person who apparently was highly educated, like Moses. For instance, how is Genesis organized? Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it talks about the early history of our planet, doesn't it? Then, when you get to Genesis 12 through 50, it talks about the early history of Israel and the calling of Abraham. And when you study this, you find these, these are the generations of markers of the, that phrase. It occurs 10 times throughout the book. Five of those generation markers occur in the 
first section, which is the history of our planet. Five of those generations of markers occur in the second section, which is the history of Israel. Five of those markers uh, introduce or talk about narratives or stories. Five of those markers talk about genealogies. Do you see how all of a sudden it's very carefully crafted and put together? It's not random or haphazard. So I say this so you know that Genesis is a very well-crafted and thought-out book. So that's the background. Now let's just move on and talk about just one verse, just the first verse today. Genesis 1.1, who created everything? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it? Because if you believe the very first verse of Genesis, it will change everything. For instance, you, cannot, you no longer have atheism. Atheism is impossible because in the beginning, God created. You also defeat polytheism because how many gods created? There's only one God out there. If you believe it, you also defeat humanism, which says man is the center of the universe because we're not the center of the universe if God created the universe. You also defeat evolution because did we evolve? We were specifically created by God. In fact, this idea of Genesis 1.1... God creating the heavens and the earth, it runs throughout the Bible. Let me just show you some things. For instance, Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Was there anything that was preexistent and eternal before God created it? No. Psalm 148.5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. That's essentially another quote of Genesis 1.1. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There is no preexistent stuff. God spoke and everything was created. John 1.3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus specifically is the one in the Godhead who carried out His Father's creative wishes. Everything was made by God. Well, what about atheists? Does the Bible ever talk about atheists who believe that uh, it all happened by chance? Yeah, it has a word for them. Genesis or Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that's the Bible's answer for atheism. So God created everything, and it was a special creative act of God. But let's think about this. When did God create it? You go to your science class, and they're going to say that this earth was some preexistent stuff, but over 5 billion to 20 billion years, it eventually evolved. The Bible says there was no preexistent stuff. And everything took place in six days, and it all happened by the Word of God. What are you going to believe? 
Some people say, well, there's probably a combination of creation and evolution together. And probably the six days weren't six literal 24-hour days because, you know, Genesis chapter 1, if you look at it in Hebrew, it's Hebrew poetry. So it's just trying to teach you that God created it, not tell you how God created it, to not be six literal days. You ever heard those arguments? Have you ever heard those arguments? Yes. Well, here's the problem. Let's put our finger in the text. That's one of my favorite lines. If you say that Genesis chapter 1 is just Hebrew poetry and you can't take it seriously, you are not just throwing out Genesis chapter 1. You're throwing out part of the book of Exodus, which is not written in Hebrew poetry. Look what it says. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the seas and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's not Hebrew poetry. Exodus says Genesis is six literal Days. You have to go with it or you don't have to go with it. I mean, you got to go with your word, God's Word. Well, you say, you know, that's that be true. Scientists tell us that the age of the earth is billions of years old. And you look at the Bible and it would seem like there's only thousands of years. Which one should I believe? An old earth or a young earth? Well, what you need to know is there's been a number of attempts throughout history to try and figure out the age of the earth by uh, not looking at radioactive dating and all that stuff, but by actually trying to follow the chronologies of, his of history using different civilizations. There are some that have tried to follow the Bible's chronologies back all the way to the beginning. There are others who have tried to follow Egyptian chronologies and Babylonian chronologies all the way back to the beginning to guess a date for the beginning of the earth. And what you need to know is that nobody has come up with a universally agreed upon date for the beginning of the earth. There, there's been a, a variety of reasons because for some people they say, well, you don't know exactly the length of a, of a calendar year in these old civilizations worth the length of a calendar year in our civilization. Sometimes the Egyptian numbers and the Coptic numbers are hard to translate and bring into our, our system of numbers to know exactly what the dates are. So we don't have a very clear, agreed-upon, universal date for the beginning of the history of the world or when God created this planet. But that being said, the dates aren't that much different. One that you've probably heard about, uh, a guy named James Usher. You'll hear about him. I think he listed his lifespan was about from 1581 to 1654. And using the genealogies in Genesis, he tried to calculate back, and he says he believes the creation, Genesis chapter 1, took place around 4004 B.C. is what he believes. Now today, most people mock him. They say, oh, how could somebody say that this earth was only created in 4,000 B.C.? I mean, we know so much better. We're so much smarter now. Interestingly, James Usher wasn't the only person who believed in a young earth. In fact, 
this old earth stuff of billions of years doesn't show up until Darwinism, when you need ultra-long ages. Friends, I'll give you some examples here. Um, Isaac Newton. I got this right? Yeah, Newton. There's some writing where he was criticizing people for saying that the earth was created around 5,000 or 6,000 B.C. He criticizes me. He says, that's too old. Um, Johannes Kepler, in his calculations of when the beginning of the earth came about, he calculated it out to 3,993 B.C. Josephus calculated the beginning of the earth at 5,555 B.C. Luther calculated the beginning of the earth at 3,961 B.C. And all I want to point out to you is everybody, even if they don't agree on when the beginning of the earth took place, they all have it as just like a few thousand years, not five billion years or 20 billion years. And even if you say there are gaps in the genealogical record in Genesis chapter 5 and in Genesis chapter 11, what you end up with is that the earth was created between 4,000 B.C. or 10,000 B.C. That's being super charitable for huge gaps. And the only thing I'm trying to point out for you is the Bible tells us if you follow these genealogical records, you have this earth is thousands of years old, not billions of years old. This is very important. What do you believe? Do you believe what the Bible says? Six literal creation days is a special creative act of God? Or do you believe what evolution teaches you? 20 billion years, 5 billion years. Now some of you will say to me, well, you know, there's so much weight on the evolution side. I, I really have to believe it. Guys, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you believe that when you die, you will go home to be with God, if you believe that God will raise your very self-same, decayed-in-the-grave body out, if you believe that God will have a special creation of a new heavens and a new earth, what's the problem with six literal creation days? It's true. But you see, we waffle on this one. We waffle on it all the time. We'll come up and say, well, we don't believe homosexuality is right because we look in the Scriptures and the Scriptures tell us this is not part of God's plan. We don't believe transgender is right because we can look in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us it's not part of God's plan. We come to like the age of the earth and six little creation days. We say, well, I don't know. Probably not true. You have to believe what the Bible says. Let's look at the next point. Is evolution true? We sort of looked at it in one perspective. The classic evolution is there is all this pre-existing eternal stuff and just given 5 billion or 20 billion years of time, it eventually gets smart and develops brains and intelligence and becomes us. Or, of course, the other side is six literal creation days. But since it seems like these two are so far apart, people have tried to harmonize them. And we come up with something called theistic evolution. You guys have heard that? That the six creation days are... It's not literal 24-hour days... 
They're just long periods of time during which things evolved and God inserted himself to create transitional species so things can keep evolving upward. You guys remember that? Let's think about this. If that was true, that meant that for billions of years, as things evolved, you had things dying. Isn't that right? Isn't that the whole evolution thing? Survival of the fittest, you know, and then you die, and then the next evolutionary thing comes along. You have billions of years of death. And then finally, after the billions of years of death, you get to the very end, and you have Adam and Eve created in a perfect world with no sin. Well, there's a problem there. Because death comes about as a result of sin. You can't have death in the world for billions of years when there was no sin in the world for billions of years. It just doesn't work. If death is in the world, then there was already sin in the world. Look what the Scriptures say. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So theistic evolution, folks, makes no sense because you can't have death in the world before sin is in the world. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Let me give you another example. After theistic evolution, there's something else that people follow called the gap theory. Let me explain to you the gap theory. The guy who popularized it uh, was the name of Thomas Chalmers, and he put it in the Schofield Reference Bible, and so people saw it in their Bible, so they said it must be true because it's in the Bible, which is one of the dangerous things about putting study notes in a, in a Bible because people think the notes are the same level of quality as the Scripture itself. And uh, here's what Thomas Chalmers said. He said between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, you have a huge gap. You have billions of years between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And in, in those billions of years, you have all the geological ages where things develop. And then all of a sudden, you get to Genesis chapter 2. He says it zooms in upon Eden. And you have a special creation taking place in Eden. Does that work? It was his attempt at trying to pacify the evolutionary scientists and to pacify the theologians. But it's the same problem, isn't it? Because the geological ages, they're all based upon what fossil is in the rock. Isn't that right? Isn't that how they determine the age of the rock? Based on the age of the fossil in it. The problem is, if you have a fossil in the rock, how did the fossil get there? It died. So you have billions of years of death in the world before sin was in the world. And if that's happening, then you've turned your entire Bible upside down. It, it doesn't work. I mean, think of the days of creation. After each day, what does God say? And it is good. It is good. How could God say it's good if there's like all kinds of death in the world? Death is our enemy. It's the great thing He's going to conquer. So my point to you is simply this. Do you really believe your Bible? Genesis chapter 1. 
we're going to cover the whole thing next week. I would propose to you it is the most disbelieved chapter in the entire Bible. We don't think God created in six literal days. And the reason we don't believe it is because we have been so deeply fed this evolutionary theory lie. But I want to challenge you. God can create this world in six literal days. And the scriptures, the Exodus passage that references back to Genesis, it says it's six literal days. And if you can trust God to save your soul, if you can trust God to have a special new creation at the end of it all, why can't you trust what he says about Genesis? Six literal days. All 200 New Testament quotations and allusions refer to Genesis as literal historical fact, not mythology. And I think for some of you this morning, the purpose of this message was simply a gentle rebuke. And I mean a gentle rebuke because that's what the Scriptures do to us, don't they? We study them and we realize that our thinking about things has been off. Probably for a number of you in this room, you've been believing theistic evolution, trying to combine six days of creation and the evolutionary theory into one, and you just realized today that it doesn't work. The proper response is to repent. And then when we come to the entire first chapter of Genesis next week, to take it as it is, literal historical fact. God created in six days. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, we come before you, and a number of us want to just, uh, just admit our lack of faith and admit that we, in our minds, have compromised uh, the simple truth of Scripture of believing that you created things in six special days, six literal days. Uh, we want to trust your Word afresh and anew. Jesus, thank you for uh, rebuking us gently and help us to have more confidence in everything your Scripture says. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.